Music is certainly a sweet gift from the Lord. There's no doubt about it. It's a gift of grace that we get to enjoy and to return back to Him in praise. So thank you all for using your gifts um, in the area of music to bless us and to, to serve Christ. Thank you very much. We can open up to Matthew 5 this morning, Matthew 5. And as you're opening there, most of us understand that we are in a time of increasing political polarization. I'm not telling you something that you don't already know. Uh, there's a research uh, institution called the Pew Research Center, and they've been conducting survey, the same survey since 1994, and it's a survey on Americans' agreement or disagreement with 10 policy statements, all right? So 10 different policy statements and a couple of examples of those statements, so you kind of get a feel for this, and then they rate people, they ask people to respond how strongly they disagree or agree with these statements on a, on a scale there, right? So a couple of them, government regulation of business usually does more harm than good. That would be one of the statements they ask, and then you, you know, how on a scale you agree or disagree. Uh, another one would be the best way to ensure peace is through military strength. So then, you know, you rate yourself on that. And so the goal is to find out how far apart people from different groups are, and then which factor leads to the most polarization. So what sort of people are furthest apart on these policy statements? What indicator makes people the furthest apart or the most polarized in disagreement? And so they found actually that since 94, the levels of disagreement uh, difference of opinion on these policy issues have actually remained remarkably similar along certain indicators like race, gender, religious attendance, and education. Those have remained remarkably the same. People generally, based on those uh, qualities, disagree or agree to the same level. But there's one that is exponentially greater now than it was in 1994, and that's political party affiliation. So if you identify as a Democrat or as a Republican, the level of polarization or disagreement has moved further and further apart since 1994. So the political parties are moving further and further apart on their views on various issues of policy. Now notice, I've just talked so far, and this study has only talked about levels of disagreement over these policies. It has not talked yet about the emotional reaction to these policies, and that's what I'm gonna to get to now. With the increase in polarization, they've also found that there has been an incredible increase in hostility toward those who are of the opposite political persuasion than you. So people think much more dramatically in a worse way, that's probably not the best way to say that, but they think more, more negatively about those who disagree with them on these policy issues than they did even 20, 25 years ago. So it's not just that we see the size of government or the amount of military strength as different than other people, but now people on both sides of the political spectrum tend to think that those with whom I disagree are the real problem, and not just that they're the real problem, but they are deserving of my aggression because I disagree with them over these policy issues. 
Now, I'm describing that and telling you those statistics just to, to let you know this is the sort of world that we are living in right now. And it's becoming worse and worse in this way. Increasingly polarized, increasingly filled with hostility and aggression. And that's no surprise to you, but there's actual research that backs up what you probably sense and feel with each passing week. Our culture is a culture that is shaped by different ideas, but also shaped by the hostility that people have toward those who think differently than they do. And so as believers, there's no doubt that we live in this world, we live in this culture, and in many ways we are immersed in this culture. And so Christians are increasingly mimicking the world in this way and becoming people of hostility toward those who disagree with them. Now, I'm not saying here that there are never reasons when, you, when it comes to policy for righteous anger and for frustration over differences of opinion. The March for Life was this past week, and this is the Sunday where we talk about that or at least acknowledge it and celebrate the March for Life. And no doubt that issue is something that we should be polarized on and we should think biblically and have a certain amount of righteous anger over the injustice that is being done and has been done in our country for years and years and years. But I'm describing this whole culture to you because I want you to get the sense that we're living in this and it's very, very easy for us to just sort of get sucked along into the hostility, um, you know, culture that is the outrage culture that is being developed and is, is continuing in our, in our world today. And I tell you that because I want us this morning to take seriously the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. So if you're not there, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Now, if Jesus here in the Beatitudes is really describing the good life, a life well-lived, a life of human flourishing, then our culture is on the fast track in the opposite direction. We've seen over and over again as we've studied the Beatitudes that so many of these are countercultural. It's opposite of what people think the good life consists of. But our call is to live out these virtues as kingdom disciples, and our call is to be countercultural and bring a little bit of the culture of heaven to the earth in which we're living, to the world in which we're living now. And as those who are kingdom disciples, as followers of Christ, we are to be people of peace. That's to define us. We're to be those who love and pursue reconciliation in every arena in which we live. And that quality, that virtue defines the good life. Let me read you our text for this morning, Matthew 5, verses 9 through 12. And we're going to talk this morning, as you can see on the screen there, about the virtue of peace. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can see here in these verses, the word blessed or our word that means the life well lived, a good life is used three times here in verse eight, nine, or I'm sorry, in verses nine, 10, and 11. And that's why I think these are three separate beatitudes here, all based on that word. But you can also see that 
the beatitude in verse 10 and then the one in verses 11 and 12 are pretty similar. They both deal with those who are persecuted, and there are particular reasons for that. We'll talk about some of those later. But verses 11 and 12 are sort of an expansion on verse 10. He gives you this beatitude, and then he expands on it further. And so this morning, as we think about this, we're going to discuss all three of these, but we're going to group the last two together into two main points this morning. And here's here's the message we're going to get from this text. Two paths to peace in a chaotic world. Two paths to peace in a chaotic world. And the first one of these in verse 9 is to actively pursue peace in all of life. Actively pursue peace in all of life. Now, I know it can be tempting to hear this word peace and the call for peace and think that it's some hippie-like plea for us all to just sort of get along. And I think there is this undercurrent of people who say they want peace in our world. There's a desire for peace because it's an echo in us of God's original design for the world. God did not originally create the world to be filled with conflict. He created it to be filled with peace and reconciliation and harmony. Sin brought conflict into the world, though. I mean, you could see that. You know the story. Adam and Eve fell into sin. And as soon as that happened, they started blame shifting. And then God's judgment on them shows us that conflict will be a constant reality in this life and for them. I mean, you think about the curses in Genesis 3 that God lays down for the serpent and for Adam and for Eve. And all of those basically define life going forward as one of conflict and of struggle, and of difficulty, of enmity. I mean, God tells the serpent, there's going to be enmity between your seed and the woman. He tells Eve that her desire is going to be contrary to her husband. And then he tells Adam that he's going to have great difficulty in working the ground and cultivating and providing food. It's going to fight against him as he seeks to provide for his family and and live in the world. And so all three of those are filled with conflict, and that's going to be a constant reality in this life. And you get past Genesis 3, and you get to Genesis 4, and immediately one brother kills another brother. And that sort of sets the tone for the the rest of life under the sun. But of course, in Genesis 3, you have this promise to Adam and Eve that a seed of the woman is going to come at some point and is going to destroy the serpent the serpent who brought conflict into the world through his lies and deceit. And Adam would have heard that as a a call, as a promise that things will be made right and peace will be brought. So then you fast forward in the story and you get to the Old Testament prophets and they're looking ahead to the time when Messiah will come. And one of the big things that they realize about the reign of Messiah is it's going to be a reign of peace. That's a defining reality for them, and it seems like they're pretty excited about that reality, a time when conflict will end. Let me show you a couple of texts for this. Isaiah 9, you know this one well. We just went through Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will do this. The great hope of God's return to his people through the Messiah was a worldwide reign of peace. This is something to anticipate and to hope in. Zechariah chapter 9. We've studied this passage before in connection with Christmas. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In this passage, the instruments of war will be taken away, and the Messiah's reign will be one of peace and prosperity all over the world. But as we've said, and as we all experience, that is not the case now at all. Now, sometimes we get maybe a little bit insulated from this because we do live in a fairly stable culture and government situation. But in the world at large, this is quite the opposite. This expectation of peace is not what most people experience. Right now, on our globe, there are four major wars happening. Now, what is a major war? Why give it that designation? A major war is one in which over 10,000 people died in the conflict just in the year 2018. There are four of those wars going on right now. Plus, there's a multitude of smaller conflicts that don't quite reach the number 10,000 in 2018, but hundreds and thousands of people have died in those conflicts. That's happening all over the world right now as we sit here. Beyond international war, there's political unrest, racial tension, workplace disputes, domestic violence, and then even just on a smaller scale, there are arguments and struggles between friends and family that probably some of you experienced this very week. There's conflict in life from the smallest personal relationship all the way up to international war and tens of thousands of people dying. Strife and war and bitterness and conflict are so common in our world that a lot of times we just assume those postures and we take it for granted that we have to be people of strife and conflict because the world in which we live is a world filled with strife and conflict and war. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 9? Blessed are the peacemakers. Notice here, it's not just those who say they want peace. It's not just those who value peace, who talk about it. Most people would love to have peace. I mean, if you ask the average person on the street, hey, do you want world peace? Do you want us to be free from conflict in our political situation, in your personal life? Well, yeah, I'd love to have peace. That'd be great. Jesus says here that kingdom disciples are those who acquire the virtue of actively pursuing peace in their lives. They are peacemakers. They go after it hard. They intentionally seek to foster conversations and relationships that help other people overcome conflict and strife. 
and lead to reconciliation and peace. One author said it this way. I thought this was helpful enough to put on the screen. Happiness, or the good life, is not bestowed on those who love peace or even on those who are peaceful themselves, but on those who actively make peace. In view is an activist, aggressive stance toward conflict and controversy, which summons those committed to peace not only to seek, but also to construct conversations, alliances, relationships, treaties, and political and social structures that have the possibility of achieving meaningful reconciliation. Every arena in which we live, they actively, aggressively pursue peace. Are you this type of person? Or are we the type of people who sort of relish the drama of conflict? We delight in it. Listen to what Proverbs has to say about peace. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. But let's make sure we understand when we think about peace what it is not and what we're not saying this morning. Because it's very easy to hear this in sort of the cultural way that we talk about peace. Peace is not glossing over differences. It's a perversion of peacemaking to ignore differences and be a people pleaser who just wants to make everything okay, wants everybody to be happy, and ignores injustice. That is not being a peacemaker here. It's a distortion of peace as Jesus is talking about it when you just want to please people and just want everybody to be happy. And what typically ends up happening when you don't deal with differences and you don't deal with conflict and you don't address it head on in order to bring about peace, what typically ends up happening is those who are most marginalized and who are weakest end up being wronged. It ends up harming them. So what is peacemaking? Peacemaking is doing the hard work of honestly dealing with sin and conflict and seeking reconciliation. It acknowledges the brokenness of the world. Peacemaking doesn't just push that aside. It deals with the brokenness of the world straight up and honestly, and then seeks to have conversations and create relationships that bring understanding and love and healing to those people who are suffering from strife and conflict. So for you and I, Chances are that you and I are never going to negotiate a Middle Eastern peace treaty, right? Sorry. Your Facebook post is not going to bring peace to the Middle East. Hate to inform all of us of that, but it's not going to happen. But this virtue, as you put this on and as you grow as a peacemaker, not just someone who loves peace, but someone who aggressively pursues peace, and deals with conflict in your daily life, it will cause you to act this way and to live this way in your marriage, in your family relationships, in your church context, being a person who seeks reconciliation and to deal with conflict so that we can all pursue Christ together and in the broader culture. As you interact with those outside of the church, other believers, people in your workplace, 
As you become this type of person, it's not just something you do, it's someone who you are. It's a virtue that you put on. You will deal with this. You will act this way in all of life. And it will begin to define how you and I deal with people. And a life defined by peacemaking is certainly a life well-lived and the good life. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9 about the outcome of being a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In the Jewish world, you were called a son of, and you fill in the blank, whoever or whatever that may be, right? A son of, fill in the blank there, you were called that when you had a quality that resembled that individual. So it's not talking about a biological reality here. It's talking about a way in which you resemble another individual, another character quality that they have. You know that to be true. Sons typically mimic and showcase what their parents are like. Bethany has said multiple times that when she sees me walking around with my bow-legged gait around the church and then sees my dad walking around with his bow-legged gait around the church, she has no doubt that Nathan is the son of Charlie. (laughs) And sometimes from the back, except for the hair, she thinks, oh, there's Nathan. Oh, no, that's his dad. (laughs) It's very obvious that I imitate him and that I am like him, and not just that way, but other ways too. So what is Jesus saying here? You and I are never more like God than when we pursue peacemaking. It is a divine impulse to resolve conflict and bring about reconciliation. Now, why would he say that? Well, think about God and think about his actions of pursuing peace. Human beings rejected God's word and his rightful authority. We didn't want him. We didn't want anything to do with him. We rebelled against him and introduced conflict into the world. We turned our backs on him. And yet, he made the promise in Genesis 3. He pursued peace with us. He pursued reconciliation with us. Listen to Colossians. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We were enemies, and God pursued us, and now, through Jesus Christ, we have become family. That's peacemaking to the highest degree. God pursues that peace by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then what's amazing is that peace, that vertical peace with God, then flows out, or it should flow out, into our horizontal relationships with other people. You can't have vertical peace with God, genuine reconciliation with God, and have that not impact your relationships with others. It's to be like God. Ephesians chapter 2 makes this very clear. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." We're reconciled to God, and this passage makes it very clear that then we're reconciled to one another. Jews and Gentiles here, people who couldn't see the world more differently, are brought together and are reconciled to one another and have peace with one another. And so we are like God when we pursue peace, because this is what God has done in our salvation. This is who he is. He's a peacemaking God. And then we turn around, and because of the grace that we have been shown, we actively and aggressively take on this virtue and this stance in every area of life, and we are compelled by God's peacemaking to seek reconciliation with other people and to help other people live this way as well. So this is a necessary path to peace in our chaotic world, to actively pursue peace in every area of life. And I would encourage you this afternoon, I only briefly hit on some of these areas, marriage, church relationships, family relationships, workplace, but I would encourage you to go back and take each of those arenas and just think through what this looks like for you, how to grow in the virtue of being a peacemaker in all of those areas. Don't just let it come from the pulpit once and then you forget about it, but be intentional about it, aggressive maybe even. So that's one path to peace in a chaotic world. And the second one is found in verses 10 through 12, graciously endure persecution with the future in mind. So I've already told you that peacemaking isn't easy, right? It's countercultural to be a peacemaker. We live in an outrage culture. The easiest thing in the world is to just float along with that outrage. And there's going to be, there will be people who do not like it when we pursue peace and when we actively try to reconcile, to be people of peace in the way God tells us to here. And of course, we don't overlook sin. We seek conversations and relationships that bring people together, but that will threaten some people. They won't like it when you are like God, when you are a son of God and you're demonstrating that in your daily life. And that's what leads, I think, Jesus to then address those who are persecuted in verses 10 through 12, these last two Beatitudes. Let me reread these to you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And there's several things we can say about those who are persecuted here. You can obviously see that's the theme of, of these, these two Beatitudes. Several things we can say. First of all, they're persecuted here because of their close association with Jesus. You see this over and over again in this. Look in verse 10. They're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's because of their association with their master, with Jesus. And then verse 12, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Puts you in the company of the Old Testament prophets who were persecuted for proclaiming God's word and doing the right thing there. So this persecution is because of their close association with Jesus. It's because of righteousness' sake. Now, what does he mean by that? I think he means that the one who is persecuted here is reviled because they put on the character qualities of verses 3 through 9. This is why I think Jesus ends the Beatitudes this way with those who are persecuted, because when you live in a countercultural way, when you're poor in spirit, when you're meek, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, people won't like it. These people that are persecuted are living in a particular manner that brings mockery and condemnation from those who aren't living this way. And they don't want to see somebody else living this way. Now, one thing I just want to be clear on here, the persecution here is not simply because other people disagree with my political views or because I'm rude online. There may be a particular political view that brings this about. That's absolutely true. But suffering for Jesus here isn't just being made fun of because you have a particular political affiliation. Jesus says here, look at verse 11. They utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. There's no basis for their slander. Nothing should stick to you. The only basis for the persecution here is because they are following Jesus Christ. They're associated with their master. It's not just because people don't like you because you're kind of a jerk sometimes. (laughs) That's not how this works. 1 Peter 3 makes this very clear. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, remember, this is Peter writing 1 Peter 3. And here he says, righteousness' sake, which is from the Beatitude in verse 10. And then he says, you will be blessed. That word blessed is the same word that is used in the Beatitudes even though it's translated blessed and not flourishing or the good life. But it's the same Greek word. So I think Peter here is absolutely pulling from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he's fleshing these words out further to these believers that he's writing to. Because in 1 Peter, he's writing to believers who have been pushed to the edges of the culture. They're on the margins of society. They're being scorned and mocked and ridiculed because of their faith. And so he tells them, you are sojourners. You're only here for a while. Live out your faith as sojourners. And he brings Jesus's words from the Sermon on the Mount here and applies them to them. So let me continue reading. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
Why are they put to shame? They don't have any accusation that can stick. The only thing they can say is, well, he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was meek. He was poor in spirit. He was merciful. He was a peacemaker. And I don't like him because of that. And so that's why Peter writes this here. You are imitating your Lord, according to verse 18 here, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, the second thing to notice about the persecution here in verses 10 through 12, back to Matthew 5, if you flip to 1 Peter, is this includes verbal harassment. Sometimes we tend to think of persecution only as physical violence, but it's very clear here that it includes verbal harassment. It includes mockery. It includes being made fun of and spoken down to because of your faith. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It includes verbal harassment, but certainly it's not limited to that. In verse 12, the prophets were in the same line as the prophets. They were persecuted before us. Certainly the prophets were verbally harassed, but many of them were beaten and were killed for their faith. And so this includes verbal harassment as well as being physically threatened and having physical violence done against you. Now, this sort of verbal harassment, I think, is becoming an increasing reality in our country for believers here. And while that's true, in some ways, we cannot forget when we read this about our brothers and sisters who are around the world who are suffering in significant ways, even beyond what we may suffer in the near future here. I think sometimes we tend to think of the American church as sort of the, the center of the church globally. It's a little bit narcissistic sometimes when we do that. But maybe you've heard this, the church is actually in decline in Europe, certainly, and in America as well, overall. And some people estimate that 72% of the global church are now found in Asia, in Africa, and in South America. In China alone, there are estimates that there are 175 million believers in China. And the number of believers, it seems to be just growing exponentially there. Certainly where I've been in Nepal, in Asia, in the 1970s, there were 300-ish believers there. Now they estimate there's maybe 10% of the population, over 3 million believers in that country in a span of 30 to 40 years. Unbelievable growth there. And that seems to be happening all over the world, or particularly in Asia, Africa, and South America. But as you think about the growth of the church there, places like Asia and Africa are not easy places to follow Jesus. Look at this map. I just pulled this up. Maybe you can see this. I hope you can. Uh, on the top of it, you see three different levels of persecution. This is an organization that keeps track of these things and sort of rates countries on the levels of persecution that believers there suffer. The, the red is extreme persecution. This would be a place like North Korea. Very high persecution is next. This would be like China. I don't know if you've read the news stories, but uh, pastors and Christians are being arrested now in China. They're tearing churches down. The communist government is getting very aggressive with believers. 
um, trying to stamp out Christianity as, as best they can. I think they understand it's growing and is you know, getting close to 10% of the population there. And then uh, the yellow one is a very high persecution, a place like Russia, Somalia uh, would be there. Um, and not Somalia, um, Yemen, I think, is there. So uh, significant levels of persecution around the world. And it's, it's amazing when you look at this map and see what I, and listen to what I just told you about the growth of the church in Asia and in Africa and South America, the places where the church is growing the most are the places where the most persecution is happening, according to this map. And why is that? Well, I think what Jesus says here is, is right. Persecution leads to the good life in a certain way of seeing it in the way Jesus sees it. Because when you're persecuted for your faith, you are anticipating and hoping in his coming and his return, and you're hoping in future rewards. Those who are persecuted here are persecuted for righteousness sake. And look what verse 10 says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They'll be rewarded for their persecution. Verse 12 Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Those whose lifestyles identify them with Christ are promised a reward when they suffer persecution for that. And I think the reward here is not incidental. Sometimes we don't like the promise of reward when it comes to spiritual things, but Jesus uses reward often as a motivation to build confidence and endurance in the threat of physical violence and persecution all the way to the end. I read a fantastic letter from a pastor in China this week. Um, if you're interested in it, I'll uh, send it to you, let you have it. But uh, he wrote this letter because he knew the government was coming to destroy his church and arrest him. And he wrote this letter and left it with the believers in his church and they published it online after he had been arrested, which is a pretty bold thing to do. But if you read through this letter, this guy is like, I know my future reward is there. I'm trusting in Christ and in his return and in the goodness that he will do to me and the promises that Jesus makes here. And all of that motivated that man to be able to stand and to not give back his faith when it came to being arrested for teaching and preaching the gospel there in China. So, when you begin to display the qualities that Jesus says make up the good life, the Beatitudes, when you put these things on, people will notice and suffering may come as a result. But when suffering comes, even something that seems so counterintuitive to the good life here actually adds to the good life because when you are persecuted on right for righteousness sake on account of Christ then it further builds the confidence that you have that you will be rewarded for that one day and that only increases the joy in this life the confidence in Christ now maybe some people hear this call to persecution to accepting of it and being rewarded for it here, the expectation of verbal insults. Maybe some people hear this and there's a desire 
and a hope that maybe we can retreat into a little Christian enclave and avoid any sort of confrontation with the world, sort of do our thing privately, and then we won't suffer these insults and won't suffer persecution, and we'll sort of, sort of just kind of avoid living out our faith in a way that is confrontational with the culture around us. I want you to notice in verse 11, the language in the Beatitudes starts to shift here. Up until this point, it's been sort of a, a promise, a, gen, a generic or general promise. It doesn't have a specific person per se. There's not pronouns used in the, the Beatitudes up to this point. But then in verse 11, blessed are you. And so he begins to target the disciples who are with him and specific believers. And he uses that pronoun you several times in verse 11 and verse 12. And so he's, he's shifting the language and making it more applicable to them and building the expectation that this may happen for them. But despite that reality of persecution, he shifts the language because he's preparing them for what they have to do as those who are followers of Christ. And what they have to do is found in verses 13 through 16. They don't hide in a little Christian enclave. They take these qualities And as they live them out, what does verse 13 say? You are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. And so the possibility of persecution doesn't cause us to retreat. It actually causes us to advance with the message of the kingdom and the gospel out into the culture. And we seek to do good to those around us through spreading the gospel and being kingdom representatives. And that's what he's describing in verses 13 through 16. And that's what we're going to get to next week. So let me pray for us. We'll finish up this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are a God of peace, that you have reconciled us to you through the death of your son. And I pray this morning that reality would shape us and form us and compel us to go out into the world to engage family and friendships as a peacemaker, as those who want reconciliation and want to do good to others, to see conflict cease. We also thank you for this promise that persecution for righteousness sake will be rewarded. That you don't take it lightly when your children suffer verbal insults or physical threats of violence. That you promise reward, even great reward, when we are persecuted for our association with you. And I pray this morning that you would build our faith in these promises so that if we face this sort of persecution, we can remain firm and strong and confident in these promises and not waver and not retreat, but continue to advance the gospel out into the world as salt and as light so that others may come to glorify you as well. Thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.